the one thing I learned the hard way is that I sort of grew up that, you know, silence was a good thing. But when people are promoting stuff to be polite that's not good, silence is actually an enabler. And so when we talk about the silent majority, for example, if you're dealing with any important issue to society, it doesn't matter what it is. Mine is climate change. If you're, if you're silent about that issue, you're an enabler. You are actually helping the side that's promoting it. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I'm constantly working at coffee shops, Starbucks, constantly on the go. That's how I do my best work. I can't stand being at home. And another thing I can't stand, not having enough screen space. That's why I'm super pumped to tell you guys about a game changer when it comes to working on the go. Sidetrack, a second dual mount monitor that hooks right onto your laptop so you can use it in Starbucks, in the car, anywhere. Pops on incredibly easy. Studies show you're 24% more productive when you have a second monitor, saving up to four hours a week. I know I don't have a ton of hours in the week, especially now being a dad, and having an extra screen, the ability to flip back and forth between them, incredibly powerful. If you've ever worked with two screens, you know just how valuable it can be. And that's why we're pumped to have the kings of multitasking sidetrack as sponsors for today's episode. If you travel, you're serious about work, serious about getting stuff done and being productive, which I know you all are, you guys should check out an awesome discount they have for our listeners. For a limited time, you can get 10% off by going to sidetrack.com. That's S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K. There's no C in there anywhere, guys. Sidetrack.com slash discount slash disruptors. Again, that's Sidetrack, S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K.com slash discount slash disruptors to save 10%, be more productive, and optimize the way you work. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks, and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm fs, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm fs. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We've known about climate change since the 80s, and we've done jack about it. There's the collective action problem and many more incentives that we need to get aligned. Well, today's climate scientist, professor, and author is somebody who's focused on exactly these issues, Gerald Cutney. He's a renewable energy consultant. He's the founder of a bioeconomy, renewable energy, and political science consulting firm. And he's written extensively in his peer-reviewed novel, Carbon Politics and the Failure of the Kyoto Protocol, on looking to a solution to the international problem of climate change. Today we'll discuss 
what caused the climate denier movement and how to stop it, how a carbon tax credit system is already working well in Canada, how everyone can do their part to fight climate change and why it matters. We answer the question, did social media break democracy? We dive deep into ways to incentivize long-term green tech and sustainability and talk about the scary, scary truth of geoengineering, something if you're not terrified of it, you probably should be. This one was a lot of fun because we really get to get into the weeds of climate change, which is something that is a hot topic today, <laughs> pun intended. So without further ado, I give you Gerald Cutney. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Gerald, you were involved with the Kyoto Protocol. Well, only in the sense that I wrote a book about the politics of it. And it went all totally wrong. How is that like it to see something so frustrating that you've kind of been somewhat involved with and trying to improve for so many years? The most bothersome part is that most people involved, the vast majority, had very good intentions, but the practical part of Kyoto are, has to be judged by the actual results. You know, Kyoto was a long time ago, and we've done nothing to slow down climate change or emissions or greenhouse gases. What year, so was, from, what year was it? Just to stop you real quick. Uh, ni 1997, I think uh, that took place. Rio was in 92 or 93. Like, we've been talking about this for a long time. And the world says this is a serious issue. We, and everyone agrees we must do something about it. But we're certainly doing a lousy job at this stage. Yeah, it's the collective commons problem. Everybody poops yeah. in the toilet. No one wants to, has to be the one that has to clean it up. So yeah, that's it. We, we've been dealing with this problem for a long time. Your background is in climate science and trying to up the public perception and cha change what's happening, really. How did you get into this world? It's almost a, by osmosis. I'm not quite sure what the defining moment was. I suddenly just found myself there. Uh, I, I had rich, originally written the uh, book about the politics of climate change and the Kyoto Protocol because I was frustrated, and this is like almost a decade ago, of why more wasn't happening in Canada and specifically where I was in the world overall. So I started looking to more, less on the science, but more in the politics of, of climate change. And for about the last couple of years, I suddenly found my, my Twitter involvement suddenly became almost all about climate change and combating the propaganda climate deniers on Twitter. How much of that was because you took it on as a personal crusade? And how much of that was someone pokes you, so you like to poke them back? I never intentionally, I'm not a crusader. I'm not an advocate. I'm the most boring, conservative guy you, you could run into. What really got me active on the Twitter side I was trying to share the science, you know, it was more my background to try to convince people it was the right thing to do. And then I started debating with some of the more high profile climate deniers. One weekend, I was, I was debating a very high profile one, and all his followers started jumping in. It was sort of silly. It was exhausting. You know, you could, I could have just turned it off and gone away, but you, you're, it becomes addictive. And I thought, what's going on here? How come this guy has all these supporters when his group isn't by far the minority? Where are all the other people on Twitter that could help out against this horde that was attacking me at the time? Yeah, it's the, it's the fake news and filter bubble problem of you get into the extreme groups and the extreme groups are the, I mean, at school, everyone has a question. One percent of people raise their hand. It's, it's the 80-20 it's problem. How do we deal with that? We'll get back to climate in a, in a bit, but how do we deal with that social media cesspool that we have of power to the power to the loud yeah they're aggressive they're loud they're bullies the one thing i learned the hard way is that i sort of grew up that you know silence was a good thing but when people are promoting stuff to be polite that's not good silence is actually an enabler and so when we talk about the silent majority for example if you're dealing with any important issue to society it doesn't matter what it is mine is climate change if you're, if you're silent about that issue, you're an enabler. You are actually helping the side that's promoting it. Especially when it's an addictive, an addictive option. No one wants climate change to be real. It'd be super awesome if it wasn't. Kind of like, it'd be super easy for me to sell you on the fact that this is chocolate that's going to help you get a six-pack abs because it's what you want to hear. So you, you have to kind of resist those type of, those type of challenges because otherwise, if you don't resist the insanity, the insanity engulfs. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and that's just a personal thing. We're all like that. And what's happening on the climate change side, we're talking about, you know, Twitter, which is something I'm very active in. To encourage, let's call it the silent majority in the Twitterverse to get involved, 
I, I introduced a hashtag. It was called Climate Brawl. I forget how I came up with the name. I felt I personally was in a brawl and I needed help. And it was meant to, meant to be a call for help. Well, I, I'm a nobody. You know, I, I wasn't expecting it to catch on. Lots of people come up with hashtags. But for some reason, this one caught. And in the, you know, nine or 10 months that Climate Brawl has been out there, there's actually a large community that before a lot of them were silent and we act like a community. So if I see someone that's in trouble with a, with a climate denier, I will help and so will others. If I'm in trouble, I'll put in Climate Brawl and suddenly people I've never met will join in and start supporting me. So that's the big change that, you know, I have seen since when I first got into trouble with climate deniers versus what's happening today in Twitter. Yeah, it's the, it's the 1%, 99% thing. I remember when I first moved to Germany and people wouldn't cross the road if there was a red light, even if there were no cars coming, until the little green arrow was like, okay, it's good to go. But the first person who walks across, suddenly everyone floods after them. And, <laughs> and it's very much the same in terms of radicalizing, not radicalizing, motivating people to action. Is that really, is that really what we need? Is just more grassroots activism, like what you're doing, not really as an activist, but just trying to make a difference? Well, you can tell by my age, I'm not your normal Twitter guy. You know, I'm a little bit older than most of them. As I said before, I've never been an activist. When I started attacking the climate deniers, I wasn't expecting a lot to happen from it. Uh, but it, it takes on a life of its own. I never thought that I could tweet my own personal comments and people would care. But it's almost like that people were looking for someone to make suggestions that they could do more and wanted to be invited into the campaign. So I'm not quite sure it's activism per se, but just letting people know that it's important that other people want them to join in this sort of thing. The most famous person in the world that's doing that right now is, is Greta Thunberg. You know, there this young woman who's a, who's a high school student is is leading a global crusade. And it, when did Greta Thunberg first show up? No one ever heard of her two years ago. And so again, there seems to be this desire out there for people to have someone said, yes, please encourage me to participate because really deep down inside, I want to, but I almost need to be invited or inspired by someone to do that. I was writing a blog post and it's about fundraising for startups. And it was something to the effect of, if at the end you haven't asked for something, it's kind of like talking to an incredible girl and then not getting her number. You're never seeing her again. You need some type of call to action to be able to get people to make that first step, so to speak. The call to action for you, the call to action for social media is people putting things out there so that other people can get behind it. Yeah, when you look at something like climate change, uh, where it's, it's an important issue to society, whatever it may be, the number one thing to do in all of these situations is engage. It doesn't cost you money. It costs you a little bit of time. But just by engaging, you've taken that first key step to trying to make a positive change as you're going along. If you don't take that step, again, you're being silent and you're really an enabler of the other side. And people don't realize that. But in these cases, silence is a terrible thing to do. Definitely. And I would say arguing science is often not the best way to go as well. Because most of most of these big brawls that people fight about come down not to fact, but to morality or how we view ourselves. People aren't pro-GMO or anti-GMO because of the science. They are because anti-GMO is more natural and feels more with the earth and GMO feels more progressive and technological. If you're able to get down to the values people have and say, well, if you are to vaccinate your kids, that might seem like a terrible, unnatural thing to do, but it's boosting their body's natural immune system so they don't have to go to the unnatural doctor to get unnatural medicines later on. It, it shifts the perspective a bit. How do we shift that perspective when it comes to climate change? That's a very important point. There are some real top-notch climate scientists on Twitter, and they engage climate deniers all the time, besides doing their normal scientific duties, which they have. Two of the more famous ones are D Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and Dr. Michael Mann. These people know the science inside out. So it's okay for them to argue with a climate denier about the science. The problem is when I first got onto Twitter and was really going into, into against the climate deniers, I was watching what other people were doing. And these climate deniers would post a silly graph that wasn't scientific in any way, shape, or form. It said, this proves that climate change doesn't exist, or some other silly comment. The natural response to that is what you suggested that people were doing. Well, here's, here's data from the IPCC that shows your graph is wrong. First of all, the climate deniers didn't care what you responded to. They never care what the response is. They have 
10 or so of their favorite silly memes and blogs that they just keep on turning out over and over again. But the problem is the people that were arguing this weren't climate scientists to begin with, and they're a little bit out of their depth as well. And so the one thing that I tried to introduce in this community that we started to form under the hashtag climate brawl was said, it's not up to us to defend the science. This is accepted science. It is up to the climate deniers to defend what they're saying is true. See, now, but I, me, I don't think it'll work that way. I, I, that's, what, that's what I'm saying is I think we need to, with people, not try to change their view of the facts, but try to change their realization of their own morals. So by shifting that moral landscape, so to speak, you change the way that they think about themselves and think about the issue. Because the issue we have right now isn't the fact that they haven't seen the facts. It's the fact that facts are much less convincing than a personal story. The one thing I often get into people even on the side of science, you know, why bother? You know, all you're doing is is advertising the climate denier who's trying to get a name for himself on Twitter. And the, as you stated, actually changing these people, the answer is it's literally zero. So why do I do it? I'm not trying to convince them. What I'm trying to do is convince their followers and other people on Twitter. You know, you and I did, talked about this earlier before we got on. The thing that I think is super important is that propaganda repeated over and over again becomes the truth if it's not challenged. And in today's world, we don't use propaganda very often. We use fake news. I hate that term. It's simply propaganda, which has always been an evil thing. It's not a cute thing. It's not a funny thing. It's a horrible thing that's trying to manip manipulate us. I would say it's like all technology is a double-edged sword because I could give you propaganda to actually make your life better and the world better, even though I know it's not true. But I, I agree with you that almost all propaganda is, is negative. Just the general usage is a government that wants to overthrow another, people that want to control other, usurping of power. Propaganda is a big problem today, and we see it happening more and more as we have more and more people. I mean, Facebook, <laughs> their advertising policy, there's perfectly fine for politicians to lie. Yeah. Well, the problem you get into, too, is that it's, face it, propaganda has been around for ages, and it will always be there. But the proliferation that we've seen in the just the last few years you know, it's blowing my mind away. You know, it's okay during an election and politicians are, are giving out their fancy promises that most of them don't turn out to be true. But in today's world, it's almost every single word out of a politician's mouth for most, not all, but most, there's no truth behind it whatsoever. They simply say what they want and the only purpose is to get elected. Yeah, it's hard with the exponential economy that we have now where clicks create more clicks, drive ad revenue, drives more engagement, drives an entire flywheel where things become. So I like I had friends in Europe and I told them when they were laughing about Trump and how bad it was. And do you think he's actually going to get elected? How crazy is this? Every time you guys are looking at those articles on Blick or on the German magazine or a Chinese one or whatever, you're making it more likely because you're making it more visible. So there's there's a saying, there's no such thing as bad publicity, no such thing as bad news. And it seems to be the case, at least in democracy. Well, there, there's a related one, and they say, don't feed the trolls on Twitter or Facebook, where the case may be. And I understand that argument, but I still maintain that the more important thing is, if you don't challenge that propaganda... It becomes the truth when it's repeated over and over and over again. And you see that in popularities of people, whether it's wherever it is, whether it's in Canada or the U.S. or Australia, where some of the strongest climate denier movements exist, that normal people, whatever that means, start believing what they're hearing, which is just atrocious. Because even though to the if you did any looking whatsoever, you know it's not true. People just resign that, oh, it's said by a very important person over and over again. It must be true. So let's get into solving the problem. How did the Kyoto Protocol go wrong and what have we learned since? What were the political issues? Wrong is a hard sort of word. The intent of an international agreement is a good one. But by definition, it's a consensus type process. And that usually means that first of all, the agreements you get are by the lowest common denominator. It's just by definition, you can't get around that. If you have 100 people in a room, it doesn't matter who they are, and you say, okay, we're, we're going to reach consensus on this issue. How are we going to word that issue? And what are we going to do? It's the ones that are in most disagreement that normally win the day. The one thing we do, though, is that such international agreements are really meant to be a stimulus 
to a nation to do something. And that depends on the nation, and some of it has been good. But there is no Kyoto Protocol law. There is no Paris law. There's no Copenhagen law. There's only the law of your nation. And so it's up to the individual countries to determine what they will actually do about climate change, for example. Well, sorry, go ahead. I know you're good. I was just going to say, well, whose fault is that? We all have a very bad habit of complaining of why climate change policies have not been initiated. Well, it's the fault of propaganda. It's the fault, well, why should we bother? It's, it's the Chinese problem. It, oh, it's, it's the fault of Donald Trump because he doesn't believe in climate change. I feel very uncomfortable about those arguments. It all starts with us. Donald Trump didn't make himself dictator of, of the U.S. He was voted in. If you look at us not doing something, it's because we decide that we're not going to do something. And so really, the first place to start, and this is not the end game by any means, but it starts with us no longer making excuses that someone else has caused this climate crisis. We have created this climate crisis, and we have to start turning it around. I think one of the big problems is it's the same problem with charity. If you see one kid starving, you're more likely to donate money than if you see two or three or four. Because the bigger the problem seems, the less you're able to feel that you can help. How do we how do we solve that with the climate crisis? Because plastic straws are, are pretty much not a big deal compared to yeah. the grand scheme of things. How do we how do we change that? Because we will need the top down changes as well to hit the type of metrics that we need to hit to not all get screwed and soaked. When you talk about situations like that, we've been cutting up propaganda. But what happens when you promote true things over and over again? Is that propaganda? No, it's not. It's the opposite of propaganda. It's called education. And so education plays a big role here. Do you and mean the for I formal education or informal? Formal and informal. I actually like the formal part, but informal especially because we have more control over that. And so when when scientists and international organizations and all sorts of studies keep on hammering, the science just hammers over and over again. We are in a climate crisis. We have to do something. There is no doubt about the science whatsoever. Boy, that's a pretty strong message. And it's scary that we're not paying more attention to that to do something. But what can an individual do? Let's say you and I are the only two people in the world that believe in climate change. How do we start? Rule number one, we already talked about. You engage. You talk about to your friends, to your relatives, to anyone who listens to you. I do the same sort of thing. I've then gone off on Twitter. And in my later part of the Twitter verse, I go on ad nauseum every single day about why this is important and why the deniers are wrong. Number two, you act. You do something. You do something, first of all, in your own life. What should you do? That's entirely up to you. What I'm doing on climate change may be completely different than what you're doing, but I try to do something to lower my footprint. The most important thing where, where really major change will be done is when we vote for the candidates for the best policies to handle this climate crisis. We are the ones that vote the people in power. They are the ones that have to do the big stuff that to really do something about climate change, they have to be the one leading it. And they will only lead it if we demand that they lead it. I would add for the personal doing stuff that you don't have to do everything. For a lot of people, it feels like an all or nothing. I either need to go full on vegetarian, vegan, I need to give up my clothes, live in a house with no air conditioning and do all of these things. You could just get a reusable Starbucks cup. It's not that <laughs> big a deal. But you know what? Now I work at Starbucks all the time. I don't need to get a cup every single day. And it's a small thing, but it's suddenly a hack. And all the little hacks that you can create in your life create small percentage changes. And those small percentage changes make much larger differences over time. I would agree, though, that we definitely need to get governments on board. I think in the US, it's tough because of the corporate finance structure. So a company can come and give you a bunch of money to more or less think like they think if you're a politician, and that's what you need to get elected. Other places, I see the problem much, much less. Yeah, that, that you, you've really identified a very important point. In, in Canada, we're lucky. Corporations can't give tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to a, a party to win. They certainly try to influence our, our, our elections overall, but it's nowhere close to what's happening in the United States. The whole reason that climate denial has become a big issue is all related to what's called the denial machine, which is financed by the, has been financed for the fossil fuel industries for about almost 40 years now. And we're talking about big financing. And this is where most of the traditional propaganda has come from. 
This is also the group that has essentially sponsored high-profile politicians to, to promote climate denier, denial and certainly not to allow any policies that would cut back on the use of fossil fuels. And now you've seen the situation in the, in the U.S. that not only is the president of the United States a cl- climate denier, studies have shown that literally every Republican in the, in, in the GOP is a, is a member as well. That itself is, is a scary fact. What's correlated to intelligence and education level. And also, I think a big part of the problem is if I tell you one political belief I have, you can guess all the other ones. Just the extremization and the partyization that we have and that you have to toe the party line or you're not able to change that. That's a whole nother can of worms. We'd have to change yeah, that, the whole constitution for that. That's a fair comment. And, you know, people often blame ideology versus believing in climate denial. That is true, but that's not the root cause. What ideology sets people up for is want is be able to welcome information that supports their beliefs. And so when the denial machine turns out propaganda over and over again, ideology opens wide to accept this sort of thing. And so ideology is a factor. But if that denial machine had never existed, we would have strong climate change policies in place in the, in the U.S., which is a leader in the world and the rest of the world would be following. See, I can kind of agree with you. And yet for me, People will be mortified to hear this, but in a lot of ways, I associate religion in a similar way of it's a problem that has a very, very, very attractive solution or end game, so to speak. And if you don't speak out against it, it is something that like candy, every little kitty wants to have. And if you don't have something pushing against the attractive proposition, pushing against the, oh, don't worry, this guy isn't falling, everything's good, then I think you st- it still kind of creates the problem in and of itself because... We want to have the easy life of McDonald's and, and Netflix. It's just, that's what we're evolved for. Yeah, and, and it's not that it wouldn't exist. It would just be much, much, much weaker. Much weaker. And is, is and <laughs> the scary part is we're not talking about weakness right now. We're talking about strength. It, it's, it, it literally blows my mind away that when the science is so clear, Science is a hate political, by the way. There's no such thing as left-wing science. There's no such thing as right-wing science. There is just science. And so when science says, this is what we understand is causing modern climate change, yes, you can see sometimes where people like it or don't like it. But for such a large part of the population to essentially dismiss it is, is just pure foolishness. It has nothing to do with politics or anything else. So let's talk about potential solutions. What do you think about a carbon tax? What do you think about some type of maybe carbon-based UBI credit system? What are some of the more promising ways that you've seen for getting that collective action that we need to get governments, multiple governments, world governments on board for moving things? The IPCC and their and their reports that come out every six or seven years always have a report on science, uh, mitigation, and one at adaptation. And when you're talking about, well, what, what we, should we do in terms of mitigation of those, they lay out the options quite nicely. What are, are the best ones? It's almost like what is the best personal option to reduce your own? It's going to vary from site to site. I don't think there is But what's your necessary... opinion? You're very involved in this. A lot of people aren't. We'll lay yeah, out a couple of the ideas that are out there. Like in Canada, we've introduced a carbon tax. It's actually called a price on carbon, but the... The right wing labels it a carbon tax. It's a terrible thing for all the people of the world because it's just a tax grab. I'm a big fan of a carbon tax. It's essentially a sin tax. It's like a, the high taxes on, on cigarettes. What it's trying to do is, is that saying, okay, you can save money by not using so much material that has greenhouse gas emissions. And the Canadian program is actually quite creative. We get a rebate every single year that for most of the population is more than they're actually paying in the carbon tax. And what's royally cool, we got that rebate before the carbon tax even began. And so I'm starting off the head of the game. Monopoly money that you can start to play with. Well, actually, it's real money. Mm-hmm. But, a <laughs> but sim- you're right. Yeah, so a similar concept. You give people the money and they start using it. it, it exactly. And at the same time, if I don't use something that has a lot of greenhouse gases, I'm going, just going to gain more money out of the rebate because my rebate is fixed. It doesn't matter what I do and don't do. The only thing that varies is how much fossil fuels that I use, for example. In theory, is the Canadian government financing it all then? I think they've shown that most of it is, is because they are collecting, sorry, up front they are. 
because I got the rebate on the previous year's income tax before in the April of that next year, the carbon tax started. So they're always catching up, but they are collecting that carbon tax uh, for use of whether it's gasoline or, or other fossil fuels or whatever the care case may be. So they're not really funding it. It's funding itself, but oh, they are, are putting the business, money Are the businesses paying for it? So the, the gas- businesses are p- paying for it as well. Do they get the credit? Uh, do they get credits? I no, they don't. That, those are individual okay. things. As things go along, now it's, it's all these things are always a little bit more complicated than they seem. But to go back to your original question, yes, I like carbon tax. So to, My, to to simplify just for listeners, what it sounds like is happening is the businesses are paying the tax, which is going directly back to consumers as the initial rebate, and then consumers are spending their rebate. But that works because government can make it move, and all consumers are on board because they're getting free money. So businesses can't change that. Unfortunately, everyone's not on board, and that's a complication in its own right. Uh, People are paying it for themselves as as well, because people are paying this as it goes on. So it's a little bit of the combination of the two. My real favorite mitigation option is essentially the program that President Obama put in for the phasing out of coal-fired power. That should be a real simple one. Coal-fired power are some of the largest point sources, as they call, for greenhouse gas emissions. Eliminating coal for, for power generation is one of the easiest, simplest things that most people would hardly notice, except for the coal companies. Now, unfortunately, President Trump has reversed all this as he's a great promoter of coal, which is frustrating in his own right. But those are my two favorite policies. Uh, our price on carbon is decay. As they say, it can be also a, a uh, it can be a trading market trading sort of program. It doesn't matter how they do it. But the other one is stopping uh, use of coal for power generation. And the good thing about that is the prices have come down so much on renewables that coal actually sucks, even just to run it in most places. Not only is it ruining miners' lungs, ruining the community, ruining the, the world, but it's actually more expensive. So, Well, what's interesting in the U.S. situation is that Trump focuses on coal when he goes to Appalachia. That is where the old coal industry was. It existed for, for, for over a century, but coal out of Appalachia has been too expensive for a long period of time. Most of the coal for power generation come, comes out as the Powder River Basin in Wyoming in giant unit trains that are taken in as of, uh, of open pit mining. And if you look at, even though Trump has encouraged coal and done everything he can to support it, coal usage in, in the United States is still declining at a, at a good pace. And so all, all the policies in climate change there's an economic reality that coal is too expensive to use for most places anyway. And there's a real good reason to help the world by stopping it as well. So it's, it's almost futile what Donald Trump is doing, but he is delaying the process. Yeah, there's more renewable energy jobs in California, I want to say, than the entire U.S. coal industry combined. It's, um, it's, it's staggering, but we're moving in that direction. How do we create better incentives for greener business, both businesses existing to become greener? And then companies that are more focused on sustainability first, be that B corporations, be that clean meat companies, et cetera. Just a comment on the corporations. When the corporations accept that climate change is an issue, and not because someone's beat them over the head to do it, that they accept it, that it's it's a good business principle to deal with climate change. And more and more businesses are going that way. Then the tide starts to turn and the whole thing will start to win. And so the idea of corporations, whoever they may be, whether you're talking with the, 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 the Googles or the Amazons, or you're talking about the car companies, or you're talking about the fossil fuel industry, they have to accept that climate change is a real serious issue that will hurt their business if they don't do something about it. Not because someone says it's an altruistic thing that we should do. We're not there yet with enough companies, but we're starting to get there Do we need some type of mass movement? For instance, when they found out that Chick-fil-A was donating money to anti-gay groups, people boycotted Chick-fil-A. Do we need to create some type of movement around consumers boycotting companies that are large polluters? Is there any type of, that's a good question, is there any type of emissions index on companies that exist so that consumers can actually make choices like that? Uh, That's an interesting question. To answer your question, I actually don't know. Uh, they're, they're, That's they're, our homework for you, Gerald. I want to see oh. that. In, I want to see that in Twitter, and I want <laughs> you to have the call out for somebody to start creating that and open well, but, sourcing it. But the idea is is 
for example, Google got into a lot of trouble uh, a few weeks ago. You say Google? I thought they were they were all for pro renewable energy and stuff like that. Uh, Google was also found to be financing right wing think tanks, of which as part of their policy was climate denial, and so that was called out. I think it, I, I think the article appeared in the Guardian, one of the best, by the way, so- social oriented uh, global news media in the world today. And I think when people are called out and they're called up enough times by enough people, they will change. And then, so I do think is that it, it comes to back that, yes, we see something we don't like. It's the silence part we were talking about before. Don't be silent about these things. One thing that happened at the end of September when Greta Thunberg came over to North America is we had climate strikes. You had them in the U.S. when we had them in Canada. The U.S. ones, there was a few successes, but proportionally, there are much more successful in Canada. I think totally across our small country, we almost had a million people in those climate strikes. One was at the, uh, I think, the 21st or 20th of September, and the other one was a week later. Uh, My wife and I protested in one here in Ottawa. We have never protested about anything in all our lives. You know, and so we felt that it was important enough. You know, we walked around chanting away with all the young people and all the older people in the crowd. You know, that's what you're starting to see. You're starting to see people that have never been advocates. And I'm really not really an advocate about things. But we're we're all you're a bit of an advocate. Let's be honest. You're not giving yourself enough credit. (laughs) But more ordinary people are starting to shout out against these injustices. That's what they are. They're injustices to all of us. Yeah. If you saw if you saw someone beating a kid or a child, you'd probably step in. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Beating a a planet's not a big deal. If anyone is working on a project like that, where they are trying to measure out specific impacts of companies or of products on climate change, greenhouse emission, etc. Reach out at matt at disruptors.fm. Would be happy to help you guys out as much as I can in terms of making that into something big. Because if it was like if it was like labeling on foods, organic, GMO, or 10 grams of sugar, once you start to see these type of metrics, people are able to change because what gets measured, you can at least manage. If you're not measuring it, you don't even think about it. Absolutely. And that's a very important point, by the way, that people forget. I, I did hear one cute, and it was a relatively small thing, is that weather forecasts should include the, the carbon dioxide measurements uh, in, in the atmosphere. And so it would say uh, partly cloudy, high today of, of 25 degrees, and the PPM levels in the world's, uh, in the atmosphere today is 414 parts per million. So how much does that change on a day-to-day basis, though? Not very much. That, it's pretty, that would it's, be the one it's, tough thing. It, it, it doesn't change very much. On a, it, it, it's, it's more seasonal than anything else, and from year to year, it's pretty small. But it's just to get it out there. The idea is that, does the number really mean that much? I'm not so sure. But I'd like to people see a forecast. It. I'd like to see instead of that's a good idea. I'd like to see instead of that, weather companies and news channels taking an action and putting up a forecasted temperature. Twenty years, fifty years, because that would freak people to shit out. Oh, that so, would be cute. I like that too. If anyone's running a news channel, there you go. There's your <laughs> way. There's your way to get yourself on the news, so to speak, and uh, start making an impact. What technologies or trends? Outside of what we've talked about today, are you most excited about and why? During my career, I was often involved with development of new technologies, especially related to bioenergy and situations like that. And it sort of has made me pessimistic about the latest trend that's out there. doesn't matter what it is. And the problem is with the latest trend, you know, people can get really excited. And a neat trick that the right has a tendency to do is going more and more in this direction, they'll say, oh, yeah, we believe in climate change and we believe that future technology will take care of it. And here's an example of some some of these exciting new technologies that are coming out. People have been saying that for 30 years. Look, what's, look where it's gotten us so far. It's gotten a squat. Now, that doesn't mean you don't try and it doesn't mean it won't happen. But damn it all, you can't depend upon it. What we have to do is not look at the latest experimental results out of MIT or, or some other university. What we have to focus on is what you could call up and saying, yes, put in that wind turbine, put in those solar cells, put in whatever technology is proven today. I would say you're half right, but I think the other half is putting the funding into those promising technologies. So taking the taking the tax credits out of uh, of non-renewable energy, taking the tax credits out of automotive, et cetera, 
and putting those type of tax credits or even possible funding into renewable energy type vehicles so that when you're putting up those wind farms, you're saving money. When you're buying that Tesla, you're getting the rebate so that we're also incentivizing this existing solutions, but then incentivizing the incentivizing the fundamental research as well. Oh, and I agree. And, you know, and uh, I know I'm a bit cynic about the, about the technology just because it's been so abused, but it is a good thing to try to do. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we're talking about the things that I would like to see done. Just personal comments, n- not really scientific, just from what I've seen. I mentioned the price on carbon. We, 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 we talked about removal of coal. The third one that, in my mind, and you're always looking at the what's the easiest to do, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we should be doing, is that I don't understand, well, somebody doesn't pick a magical date. Let's say it could be 2025, 2030, saying all new cars sold in this country have to be emission-free. I don't see how that would be a challenge. All you have to do is buy an electric car. And I'm not saying that people have to buy an electric car. If I had to go buy one tomorrow, I don't, I'm not quite sure I could afford it. But the idea is that new cars being sold after a magical date, have to, however you do it, details are, I, I don't care to a certain extent, they have to be emission-free. I think the car manufacturers would have time to give them enough time to retool their plants. And so starting by 2030 or something, you know, I'll just use an electric car as an example. They're only going to be turning out electric cars. Transportation sector is huge. And that way, the problem starts getting solved by itself. Oh, now we get into the interesting stuff, because this is what China does. But China is very authoritarian. I know I was in I was living in Hangzhou five years ago or something. No non-electric vehicles allowed in the city and at least in terms of motorbikes buses they were on the way to cars there are a lot of cities that are doing this now how do you how do you view that in that authoritarian or centralized governments can act much better on this but then we have the flip side of human rights violations it's happening now in hong kong the the uyghur situation of internment camps essentially how do you how do you think about that do we need some type of more centralized control or can democracy make actions fast enough let me get sidetracked just a little bit in, in, in the denier world, the, they have no science to back themselves up. And I get into more and more arguments that, you know, well, you know, what you're trying to do is socialist or it's communist. And then, of course, they'll accuse me of being a fascist of what's going on. In all this, democracies, by definition, suck at make major changes. Okay, they're not designed for this. Democracy is really bad when you're trying to make changes today where the real benefits will be in the future because our electoral cycle doesn't allow for that. But simply saying that by a certain date that car emissions... You've got to have recourse, though. You've got to have a gun to somebody's head. Well, what happens is I'm just going to say about about the cars. If you say, okay, at a certain date, the emissions have to be zero. Well, what's the difference than when they had um, mileage setting for cars in the past? We're saying by this date, the average car has to have a certain mileage. It's no difference. So this isn't authoritative or anything else. It's that looking at what potential challenges you're introducing regard to what the benefits are. And the benefits for climate change, we need something major. And so this isn't being authoritative by any means. It's giving companies the technologies are already there. It's just pushing companies in that direction. Now, if you suddenly told a, a, a company that they had to do something exactly, well, that's a little bit of a different story. Any regulation can be taken as being authoritative by definition. But democracies, if an elected government promotes it and puts it through, it's not authoritative. It's the part of the democratic process. And it's necessary and it's necessary also, according to Adam Smith and the fathers of modern capitalism, when you have markets that do not function and the markets that do not function or have some type of external cost associated with them are the ones where you have to have the regulation involved. For instance, the collective action problem of climate change, of privacy with Facebook, Google, etc., of healthcare in the U.S. You need to have certain things to the certain things need regulation to create play to create level playing field because if you're playing chess and i'm playing checkers and someone else pulls out a hand grenade i wonder who's going to win that game you brought up a very interesting point which get me uh, will get me on another tangent of, of mine when you look in american politics of when it looked like climate change policies were earnestly going to be initiated it was when reagan came to power People were almost there during the Carter administration, and it looked like during the 80s, this was the moment. The science was ready. The general 
uh, popular opinion seemed to be ready, and then Reaganomics showed up and destroyed it all. The idea there was business does best in a free market, no regulation economy, because in a capitalist society, they will essentially be self-regulating. That is such BS. Capitalist society are, are fine, but regulations are absolutely necessary, or you get everything that you saw with toxic assets to anything else. Companies are there to make profits for the shareholders. End of discussion. There's a few exceptions, but they're very rare. So you can't let corporatocracy run your government. It's not right. And so I totally agree with you. Some regulations are there. That doesn't mean you're out to destroy capitalism. That's what the right-wing think tanks try to do right now. If you suggest you're going to put any burden under the free market society that is especially so important to Americans, less so in other places, but especially to Americans, it's, it's looked upon as some sort of evil thing that you're, you're, you're against liberty and the, you know, and the right of freedom. It's not. It's exactly just the opposite. You're stopping the corporations from essentially dictating who's running the country when it should be the people running the country. And for anyone that needs a good counterexample to people that are against this, what would be the most recent regulation in the National Football League? It would be not hitting people in the head when you're tackling them. Has that ruined football? Or has it at least tried to help some of these, these guys who are getting their lives ruined and still kept the game as crazy as it ever was? You can have regulations that improve the game. And I think that that's what we need because we're all incentivized to think about ourselves first and others second. And yeah. that's how we're wired. But as long as we acknowledge that, we can work around that wiring. Yeah, your, your example is a very good one. And the, the problem that people get into is, you know, it was about three or four years ago, there was the big demonstrations against the 1%. They were the evil ones on Wall Street and everything else, with good reason, by the way some reason that all disappeared and all of a sudden we, we think to think, oh, we all believe in the trickle-down economy, which is the one of the greatest fallacies that have ever existed. The trickle-down economy has never worked. And that suddenly corporations and only what Wall Street is doing is important. You look at the tweets of Donald Trump. What does he brag about? Bragged about this morning. NASDAQ hit a new record. Aren't I a great president for doing that? And the stock market's all made up. I will say, I think trickle-down economics had some merit before we got into an era of exponential and digital technology. Because how do you create a trickle-down of something exponential other than an ocean getting into a shower drop? Well, we don't, we don't have to get into argument over this, but the one thing you have to watch over, let's say, the, 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 the tax cuts that Trump introduced. Oh, God. Where did, where did the, that money go to? Did it go to... Stock buybacks. Uh, yeah, it went to stock buybacks. It didn't go to the employees. Their wages weren't improved. The companies didn't start building new factories or start moving them from overseas back to the U.S., which would have been a great thing if they had done it. That would have been a perfect example of a case like that. And so the only thing that happened was the, the corporate tax cuts, which were significant, went to the people that already had the money to begin with. Gerald, thanks so much for coming on today, for illuminating certain aspects of the climate issues where we're headed and how we can start to work towards a better future and world. Before you tell people where to find you, what is one thing you'd want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, it can be anything. I have a habit of repeating myself over and over again. I think the most serious threat to society today and to democracy overall isn't just climate change, is propaganda repeated over and over again becoming the truth if it's not challenged. We as a society should never tolerate being manipulated by, by groups and people challenge propaganda. And support the media because the media's job, even with the issues we have with the advertising economy, their job is to try to bring light on things that need light bringing on upon. And unfortunately, a large part of them, there's some major exceptions, have done a dismal job in this regard. They used to be the, the, the truth screeners for us when dealing with politicians. They're not anymore. They become like us. They want to be, have the first news item that's out on the uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, as the case may be. Public media ha has a true duty to help stop this. In the past, they've unintentionally actually promoted it. And one, some of the few exceptions are like The Guardian that I mentioned to you before, National Observer is another one, that truly have the social conscious driver in there to do more than just looking up at how's the latest uh, uh, income revenue stream. The Guardian, funded by funded by BBC and the British government, right? I'm not quite sure who financed them, but I just 
I admire what they try to do. I do like the the journalism efforts that do have the outside funding so they don't have to worry about the business of selling information. I think that, that that's a good way to go if we can get it without having the issues of Bezos owning the post and possibly deciding to move the dial at one point in time. <laughs> well, and if you look at media generally, as you as you identified, there's these few giant conglomerates that own most media outlets, which was never true in the past. And so whether it's Murdoch, who's the most famous, or whatever the case may be, Murdoch says do something in every single news station or newspaper will do it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exponential impacts. Gerald, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing this. Where is the best pace for people to learn more about you and what you do? Obviously, give them the Twitter handle because we've talked Twitter quite a bit. Yeah, please follow me on Twitter. That's the easiest one. It's at Gerald Kootenay. And uh, I'm pretty easy to find on, on, on Twitter. Uh, I spend too much on tw- time on Twitter. <laughs> I should spend less. But that's where I... Uh, I rant and rave about about the importance of climate change science and what is wrong with climate denial. And if you guys believe in this and what we're doing, you believe that we do need more media that is focused on shedding light on things, consider sharing this episode with a friend, a family member, or leaving a review on iTunes. It's the biggest high five you can give us to help make this more mission and impact driven because it really doesn't matter what I do unless we have more people doing what you guys do to make it better. So thanks, Disruptors.fm, and thanks for coming on, Gerald. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers, guys. Go get a reusable Starbucks cup if you're always there. (laughs) Trust me, it's a great hack, and sometimes they'll even give you free refills because they think you already bought a cup. Cheers. (laughs) Bye-bye. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.